So today's guest is Shona Minson. Shona is a British Academy Research Fellow at the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford. Having worked as a criminal and family barrister, she has a particular interest in sentencing and the rights of children impacted by their parents' involvement with the criminal justice system. Her work over the past 10 years has influenced the development of policy and practice on the sentencing of primary carers in the UK. So my local university at the time, Surrey, did a part-time Masters in Criminology, uh, Criminal Justice and Social Research Methods. So I got a place on that. And in my first year, was writing an essay on the imprisonment of women and was really shocked by what I found. Um, I was shocked that there was no consideration for children when they were separated from their parents in that situation, because in the family courts, the child's welfare is the paramount consideration of the court. And that kind of got me asking more questions and trying to find answers and realising that the answers didn't exist, that the research wasn't there, that there wasn't an evidence base for what judges should be thinking about. Um, there was no evidence for whether judges did think about these things. And that was when I realised I probably needed to apply to do a PhD so that I could try and fill some of those gaps. And that was how I found myself in a criminology department. Thank you. That, that's quite a complex mosaic of uh, activities there. Um, but, but most of them sort of doing something, um, being active in your, your work. And, and it's fascinating hearing how people make these personal choices, because just the other day we were talking to somebody involved in the law who'd made a different choice to you. Instead of going to the barrister work, which they started out at, they chose to be a solicitor. And anyway, that's really by the mm. way, I suppose. So can you then say you, you've hinted already at the kind of shock that you received when you looked at the kind of uh, legal framework of uh, women and particularly women in the criminal justice service. Can you say how your main research interests developed? Yes, so I was aware of this difference between the family courts and the criminal courts and the way children were being regarded when the state was separating a parent from their child and the duty of care and, and all those things. And so I realised that I probably had to look at two things. One was to find out what was happening to children when their mother did go to prison, because if in fact no harm was suffered, then we didn't need to worry. Um, and there was no evidence about that. So we didn't know one way or the other, although you could make a bit of a reasonable guess on that. And I also needed to look and find what judges were thinking about when they sentenced, because there was no point in me saying you're not thinking about this if they said, well, in fact, we are. So I needed to do that bit of research. So that was how I came up with my PhD proposal to look at both those things. And I was really interested in talking to a lot, there's a lot of research around, not so much in the UK, but in other countries where people talk to the parent who's in prison or they talk to the person looking after the child. And it really mattered to me to talk to the children and to talk to them while they were in the midst of the experience so that we really understood what they were thinking, feeling, experiencing at that point in time. Thank you. So I can see from the direction you're talking about that one could very quickly get into quite complex uh, emotional areas, both with children and with parents. Is, 
is that what you found? Yes. Um, so I, I ended up with uh, having gone through the ethics process with permission to interview children whose mother was in prison at the time, to interview adults who were caring for children whose mother was in prison at the time. And sometimes those were the adults of the children I spoke to, but sometimes they were adults who, for whatever reason, the children didn't want to speak or maybe they were too young. And so I still wanted to hear their experiences. And that became a really important thread of the research. And I had permission to interview Crown Court judges as well. So I set off to go and have all these conversations um, with people at different points in the process. And yes, it very quickly um, landed into some incredibly complex emotional territory. And, and did you have any preparation for the emotional impact of, of that work? No, not specifically. So I had, um, I suppose I would say I've, I've fairly good uh understanding of various things from from my own experience of some therapy in the past um from seeing other people go through it from reading a bit um so I thought I had some degree of awareness I has had as I said I'd been a barrister doing um child abuse cases so I'd I'd been exposed to difficult material in a professional capacity previously um and to be honest, I think at the bar, you think you're quite hardcore, the things that you see and hear and deal with. So, um, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd lived life in a family with things going on. So I thought that I was fairly emotionally resilient um, and would would be okay. But I did realise there would be difficult things. What kind of impact did uh, that kind of work have on you then? Well, it turned out it had fairly enormous impact, um, but it took me a very, very long time to realise. So when I started, I mean, you ask about preparation. Sorry, I perhaps didn't answer that fully. But when you put in your ethics application, there's not any. The only question is sort of, will you talk to your supervisor about this? And you say yes. Um, and. You you're not sort of it wasn't suggested that there were other options or that I should be thinking about other things so you think very carefully about the ethics for the people that you're going to talk to and what their debrief strategy is and whether you're going to be leaving them with things that are difficult and how you who you suggest they go on to you think a lot about aftercare for your participants but none for myself so I suppose the habits I got into when I was doing it were that I would you know, I'd be told there was somebody who was willing to talk to me. It was hard finding people because they're very hidden, this population. And I would have whatever contact and then go and see somebody. And, and quite often it would be a long way from where I lived. I might have, um, you know, had to stay overnight or go somewhere else or drive. So usually on my way there, I'd be thinking about I had a, a, an interview schedule of the questions that I would ask. But I remember very clearly the very first interview I did and I arrived far too early. So I went and sat on a village green, um, just going over my notes again and then arrived at the house for the interview. And the things that I heard were utterly shocking to me. Um, I think I had known that life would be difficult for these 
this population, I had not in my wildest dreams imagined the scale of devastation potentially that was being wreaked on people's lives. And so I sat through that interview, as you do as a researcher, with essentially a poker face, but also trying to be as um, open to let to encourage the participants to speak and say as much as they wanted to uh, and not stop any conversations and just let it keep coming. So you're doing a very odd thing of not being able to emotionally engage at all, but also trying to make yourself almost that they can transfer onto you all the things they're feeling. And what I found in that first interview and was repeated is that I was often the first person who had asked people about this experience, which I found shocking. And so they were having their first experience of articulating hard things. And I was in this extraordinarily privileged position of being the first person they trusted to hear it. And the combination of that was pretty enormous. Um, And I would drive away from them feeling quite shell-shocked and just going over and over and over and over the things I'd heard. And then, of course, you then have to transcribe the interview. Um, So you listen to it in detail many times to make sure you've got all the words right and then when I finally had all my transcripts you then start analysis of everything and what I find really difficult as well was um, I was interviewing judges at the same time as I was interviewing children you know not literally in the same room but within a week I might have an interview with a judge and I'd have had an interview with a child a few days before and the judges on the whole didn't understand the impacts So would be saying, well, so long as they go to somebody in the family, they'll be fine. And I would be remembering a child sitting, telling me some terrible things um, or a carer telling me that the first person the child had been moved to had, in fact, abused them. And then they'd got moved on to them. And just thinking you're wrong as the judges were speaking to me. But I couldn't say, you know, that wasn't part of my um, my interview strategy. And but I find that I was so emotionally conflicted. And I had to stop doing that. Um, I couldn't interview children and judges or carers and judges within the same time period because I I just find it impossible. Um, I remember driving home from work one night from the station and hearing on the news that the mother in a family where I'd met the grandmother and aunt who were looking after five boys and the mum had been on remand and was waiting oh no had had been on remand when I interviewed them I then heard that she'd been sentenced and the judge had really taken the children into account and it was a very very serious crime but the judge had known the state that the children were living in and how difficult life was and had I thought given a really appropriate sentence and it had been referred um, as being too lenient a sentence and I was driving home and heard on the news that the sentence had been reverse had changed and she'd been given double the time in prison and I knew what that or I had a hint of what that meant for that family and I had to pull in at the side of the road to cry um, because it was just so bleak and I was thinking what am I what's the point of what I'm doing here I saw my GP who said you need some time off work you're clearly not very well um you know, see how you get on with HR at work and if occupational health can do anything, come back to me. If not, 
um, but it sounds like you're experiencing some very severe anxiety symptoms and this may well be linked to your work. Um, anyway, cutting a slightly long story short, um, I was referred by HR to occupational health. I was signed off initially for a month and I felt terrible. I felt really ashamed. I felt stupid. I felt um, a bit of a fraud, but I did know that I couldn't work. So that bit I was very clear on. I knew there was, I had absolutely no capacity to work. I didn't understand why. And I thought I was just being a bit pathetic. You can really hear that kind of a bit of a harshness towards yourself, Shona, in this, that sense of, oh, you know, I'm being weak and pull myself together. But I think when you're in a culture where people don't talk about emotions, if you're the person experiencing and in touch with your emotions, then you can stand out and it can seem as though having emotions is unusual when in fact, you know, just hearing you talk about your work um, pulls up all sorts, sorts of sadness uh, for me listening to, to what you're talking about. So I can only imagine how painful it would be to really immerse yourself in that story. And I suppose I wonder what happens when people don't allow themselves to immerse themselves emotionally in the work, because my guess is that that must affect the quality of the research that that comes out. There's some there's some inherent truth in there, isn't there, if you're engaging with stories in a in a real emotional way. But if within academia generally we don't have a model of supervision for various um, subjects, then it's not happening. And people don't really know quite what to do with what they feel. And people obviously turn to the, the sort of usual things. People will maybe talk to family or friends or a partner in a bit of a debrief. People will drink too much. People will distract, um, do whatever it is that they have to do to get through and tell themselves that they should be coping. <laughs> 